Uh, dear Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, uh, we pray that you'd be gracious to us. Lord, we pray that you'd give light to our minds. We pray that you would make your word plain to us. Lord, where we need to repent, Lord, we pray that you enable us to do this. Help us to turn to you in faith. Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply your word to us. And we pray that your word would accomplish uh, its purpose uh, this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world that we live in uh, is one in which there is much opposition uh, to God. Uh, In some countries, uh, it's very obvious, uh, there is the threat of violence or imprisonment uh, for teaching others the Bible. Um, But perhaps uh, for us, it's more subtle. Uh, For example, for me, it's uh, perhaps uh, when I go to work uh, amongst the majority of non-Christian people who don't believe in Jesus... And there is this sense in which to talk about Jesus is unwelcome. And when people make comments against Christianity, there seems to be this general support and agreement. Um, which, and there's this uh, sense in which Christianity is despised. And when we see uh, in the media as well, we see a similar thing. Uh, on the television and in the papers, we see that Christianity is largely spoken about in a negative way and it's often ridiculed. And as Christians, we can feel outnumbered. And when we sense this general opposition, it's very easy for us to feel intimidated and to lose confidence. But as Christians, we know from the scriptures and from the history of the church that when God has really moved things, when God has really been at work in the world, he has used Christians who have been bold. He has used Christians who weren't afraid to speak and to act for God. So how can we go from being a timid Christian to a bold servant? Well, Psalm 2 has much to say about this very issue. So let's turn to Psalm 2 now. Uh, It's on page 532, uh, and it will greatly help our understanding if we uh, are looking at that passage uh, in front of us as we work through it. Uh, Often at the start of a psalm, there is a title or a note which tells us who has written the psalm. Uh, In this case, there is no note. But when we turn to the New Testament, we find in Acts chapter 4 that when the New Testament believers quote this psalm, they ascribe it to have been written by David. So we can be confident that David, the king of Israel, is the author of this psalm. Uh, This morning uh, I want to focus on four things, four important truths that we can learn from this psalm. And the first of those is found in verses 1 to 3. And that is that all people oppose God. Verses 1 to 3 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The first thing that we notice about this psalm is that it begins with a question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Here in verse 1, David plunges straight into the theme or the main idea of this psalm, which is 
that it is senseless to oppose God. David is saying, why do people bother to oppose God? It is foolishness, it is vain, it can never succeed. So here we can see David's confidence in the face of opposition. And he clearly states that it's those who oppose God who are foolish. After posing his opening question in verse 1, David then goes on to verses 2 and 3 to describe this opposition further. So let's stop for a moment uh, to consider and to try and understand the opposition that is talked about in this psalm. Firstly, let's look at who the opposition is coming from. Uh, In verse 1, David has said that the nations are conspiring and the peoples are plotting. But who are the nations David is referring to? Well, when we look down to verse 3, we see that the people speaking there say, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So the people speaking are those who have been conquered and brought under control. They are bound with chains. So this indicates to us that these people are from the nations that King David has defeated in battle and has brought under subjection. And as we read on in verse 2, we see that the opposition is not just coming from the common people or the general population of these nations, but it's also coming from their leaders. The kings of the earth and the rulers are referred to. So that is who the opposition is coming from. It's coming from the nations who David has conquered, their people and their kings and rulers. Let's now look at what is the nature of this opposition. What are these kings and rulers and these people doing? Uh, In verse 1, David says, The nations and people are conspiring and plotting. The people of these nations have had enough of David's rule over them, so they are uniting and coming together to plan secretly how they can rise up and overthrow David. And when we come to verse 2, we see that these ideas and plans have now turned into determined action. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. The kings are taking their stand in battle. The battle lines have been drawn up, just like the way we set up pieces on a chessboard with two sides facing off. They are resolutely setting themselves for war. So what we are seeing here is a revolt, an uprising, a rebellion. They will no longer submit, so they have planned and plotted and will now fight to be free from David's rule over them. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And in the second half of verse 2, we see who the opposition is against. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Firstly, we see that the opposition is against the Lord. This is not an ordinary battle. The nation of Israel is not just any other nation. Israel are God's chosen people where he has started to begin his kingdom on earth. And secondly, we see that the opposition is also against the Lord's anointed one. Who is this anointed one? To anoint someone means that you pour oil on their head. And in the Old Testament, 
This was a special way to set someone apart for a particular tasks, a particular task. So we see in the Old Testament that priests and kings were anointed to set them apart for their role. And in this psalm, the anointed one refers to David, the king of Israel. So as God is king over Israel, he appoints a man to rule on his behalf. So when these nations rebel against Israel and Israel's king, uh, they're really opposing God himself. So in these verses, verses 1 to 3, we see that the opposition against God and against David, his king. But this opposition against God and his king, is that something that has just occurred in David's time? Or is it something that is more relevant to our time as well? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we find that the New Testament believers quote the first two verses of this psalm in Acts chapter 4. And we can see that they apply this psalm to the crucifixion of Jesus. They say that the nations and the peoples who are plotting are the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel who oppose Jesus. And they say that the kings and the rulers are Herod and Pontius Pilate. And they say that the anointed one is Jesus. So this psalm is not just about David and those who opposed him, but it is really about Jesus and those who are in opposition to him. Opposition to God's rule is not something that was just in the time of David or in the time of Jesus, but it is something that has always been right from the time when Adam and Eve first decided to disobey God, right to the opposition we see today when we talk to people about God and meet with hostility. So why is there always this opposition to God's rule and to Jesus, God's appointed ruler? It is because humans, uh, you and me included, uh, have a sinful nature which does not want to submit to God. This is what it says in Romans chapter 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This is what you and I are like by nature. So what we read in verse 3 It's not something that's just about David's time, but it's a picture of human nature and it's relevant to every time. It's a picture of you and me. You may not be someone who obviously conspires or rages against God, but we also see in this psalm that opposition to God is shown by seeing God as a restriction by seeing God as someone who stops you from doing what you want to do. And that's the picture we have in verse 3. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And this is the same desire that Adam and Eve had when they disobeyed God in Genesis chapter 3. They didn't want to live under God's rule. They wanted to rule themselves. And this is the essence of sin And this is the picture that we have in Psalm 2. And every time we disobey God, we are saying that we don't want to be under God's rule. Have you realised that this is you by nature, that by nature you are opposed to God's rule? 
It is only when a person becomes a Christian that God gives them a new heart and they can begin to live under God's rule. What about you? Do you see being under God's rule as a burden, something that you'd rather be free from? Maybe even being here today you feel is burdensome. If you are not a Christian, if Jesus is not your Lord, then you are opposing God's rule. Is this true of you this morning? So in the first three verses of this psalm, we've seen the opposition that is against the Lord and his anointed one. And we've seen that it's not just something that happened in David's time, but is a picture for all times, because all people oppose God. The second uh, truth we can see from this psalm is that God is not threatened by opposition. And we see this in verses 4 to 6. Uh, So far, uh, we've been focusing on what's been happening on earth, but now we look up, we look at what God is doing. How is God responding to this opposition? What is his reaction? In verses 4 to 6, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. As we look at God's reaction to this opposition, we learn three things about him. Firstly, we see his sovereignty. We see his power and control over all things. God is not at all threatened. In verse 4, we see God referred to as the one. There are many small kings on earth, but there is only one king in heaven, the king that is over all kings. What is happening on earth cannot touch or shake what is in heaven, despite the the planning and conspiring and all the efforts of God's enemies God is still enthroned over all and he's not threatened at all. And we can see by his reaction, it says he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God's reaction is to laugh and scoff at those who rage against him. There is not even any consideration that this is a real threat. The attack of man is dismissed as being so obviously ridiculous that it is scoffed at with contempt. So we can see God's power and complete control. Secondly, from God's response, we see that he deals with sin. We see in verse 5 that he rebukes them in his anger. First, God has mocked them. Now he corrects them. God is not threatened by them, but he deals with them. God's God's God responds with an angry rebuke expressing his strong displeasure. God is not only angry, but he is wrathful and he terrifies them in his wrath. So we see that God is not threatened, but that he deals with sin. And thirdly, in verse 6, from God's response, we see his unchanging purpose. We have seen that God has rebuked these rebels in his anger, but what is the content of this rebuke? What does God say in his rebuke? And this is what it says in verse 6. The Lord says, 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord's rebuke is to state what he has already done. He has put his chosen king in place. He has established David as king. This is what they are raging against, but God has already done it, and it cannot be overturned. It has been settled by the highest authority and should not be challenged. And it remains God's purpose. After having seen God's response to opposition, we can now understand why David is so confident in his opening question in verse 1. It's because he knows that God is all-powerful. He knows that God can easily deal with those who oppose him and that God's purpose cannot be overturned. And it is when we understand and believe these things about God that we can face opposition with boldness and confidence. And it's when we see these things about God that we'll see that opposition to God is in fact foolishness. But it's when we forget to look up and we simply look around at what is around us It is then that we see that we are outnumbered and that those who oppose God are actually stronger than us. It's when we look to our own resources that we begin to fear. But when we look to God, we can face opposition with confidence. If God is on our side, it doesn't matter who is against us. God's power cannot be matched. He is in complete control. He has all the resources. The only way that we can be confident in the face of opposition is if we are confident in him. In verse 6, David has told us that the Lord has put his king in place and his purpose remains unchanged. But as we go on to verses 7 to 9, we are given more detail about God's purpose to establish his king. Which brings us to the third important truth that we can learn from this psalm, and that is that God has made Jesus king over all things. In verses 7 to 9, David tells us what God has told him personally. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the end, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. In verse 7, it says that what God has told David is his decree. A decree is a law pronounced by a king. It is an official order that has the force of law. This is God's unchanging and set purpose. So what is this decree? Uh, Well, it has two two main parts. Firstly, the decree confirms the relationship between God and David. You are my son, today I have become your father. This relationship between David and the Lord is expressed in terms of father and son. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel is referred to as God's son because he is God's appointed servant 
God's deputy, if you like, the one who represents God and does his will. And we can see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God promises to establish the throne of David's offspring forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, referring to David's offspring who would reign on David's throne after him. When the Lord says to David, You are my son, today I have become your father, the Lord is affirming that David is the one he has chosen to be his king. So the the decree confirms this relationship. Secondly, the, the Lord's decree outlines the privileges or the rights of this special relationship between David and God. As God's king, David has the privilege to call on God to establish his kingdom. Ask of me. In response to the king's request, the Lord will do two things to establish his kingdom. We see in verse 8 that God will give possession of the nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God will give to his king the whole earth, all nations, all lands for him to own and possess as his inheritance. An inheritance is something that is given to us because of the relationship that we are in. It is something that is ours by right of relationship. Just like our physical characteristics, they're something that come to us because of the relationship that we have with our parents. Whether they're good or bad, we inherit them. They are our inheritance. As God's son, the king has the right to own all of God's creation. So possession of the ends of the earth is the first privilege of this relationship. And in verse 9, we see that God will give to his king dominion. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. A scepter is a special staff that is carried by a king and is a symbol of his rule and sovereignty. It shows that he is the one who has power and control. We read that this king will rule over the nations with an iron scepter. The rule of this king will be a strong one, one that cannot be challenged, just as iron cannot be bent. The rule of this king will not be compromised or bent. Others will have to bend and submit to it. He will be completely dominant. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. There will be no match for his strength. All opposition will be completely destroyed. Just as an iron bar so easily shatters through pottery. So in verses 7 to 9, we see the decree of the Lord as spoken to David. Firstly, the Lord confirms David as his king and then promises him the rights of this relationship which are possession and dominion over the nations. Now, you may be thinking that uh, God may have promised uh, possession and rule over all nations to David, 
But David never actually did rule to the ends of the earth. It is true that David defeated many enemies and enlarged the territory of Israel, but he never did rule to the end of the earth. And it's at this point that it is important for us to remember that yes, this psalm is about David's rule, but ultimately it points forward to the rule of Jesus Christ. Uh, These verses from Psalm 2 are quoted many times in the New Testament, but when they're quoted, they're quoted to to show that they're really about Jesus. David, as king of Israel, was a son of God, but Jesus is the son of God, the one who has the perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus always does God's will, And he is the one that God has chosen to rule over all. Not just for 40 years, as David did, and not just in the region of Palestine, but to Jesus God has given an everlasting kingdom and he will reign over all the ends of the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead after paying for the sins of his people, he was exalted to the highest place, and given the name above all names. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And in Acts 17, we see that Jesus is given authority to judge. So when it comes to Judgment Day, Jesus is the one who will judge all people. The Lord Jesus is now seated at God's right hand in the place of all power. As Christians, this gives us further encouragement and confidence to serve God in the face of opposition. When Jesus met his disciples after he had risen from the dead in Matthew chapter 28, he told them that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Humanly speaking, they had been given a daunting task. But Jesus also went on to say to them, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it is of great comfort and encouragement to us to know that the all-powerful Lord Jesus is with us in our efforts to serve him. And now God is in the process of building Jesus' kingdom, of putting all his enemies under his feet. This is the unstoppable purpose of God, and all opposition to this kingdom will be brought to the ground. God has made Jesus king over all things. And if this is the case, it doesn't make sense for us to remain opposed to him. And this brings me to my fourth and final point this morning. God commands all people to serve his son. We now come to the fourth and final section of this psalm in verses 10 to 12, where David makes his conclusion Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. 
For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We notice that verse 10 begins with therefore, as if to say, in light of everything that has just been said, this now is the logical and reasonable conclusion that we are to come to. Up until this point, we have seen that God has an unchanging purpose to make Jesus king over all things to the ends of the earth. And with all power and dominion, he will shatter any opposition to him. Now, in view of these verses, what should these rebellious kings do? David goes on to tell them, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. These kings should be wise. They should do what is in their own best interests. They should do that which would produce the best outcome for themselves. These rulers should be warned. They should stop and take heed and rethink their present course of action. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell them more specifically what is the wise way and what does the person do who is taking on board this warning. David goes on to tell them, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Here there are three things they should do. They should serve the Lord with fear. They should use their minds and their bodies to establish God's kingdom rather than their own. They should do his will and carry on his purpose and do all things for him. And note, as they serve him, this is to be done with fear. They are to have the utmost reverence and awe at his power and majesty. They are to rejoice with trembling. They are to become God's people. And God's people have much reason to rejoice and much to be happy about. They are under God's rule and are to enjoy the benefits and be happy. And thirdly, they are to kiss the Son. They are to come to him, to submit themselves to him and surrender to him. The rest of verse 12 gives us the incentive for them to do these things by telling us why. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The reason they should submit to him is that firstly, to be unsubmissive to someone so powerful is to be in a very dangerous position. God can destroy his enemies at any time, His enemies only exist because he is being patient with them. After considering the perilous state of the enemies of God, David then exclaims, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. After considering all this, the psalmist can't help but conclude that those who are under God's rule and those who are under God's appointed king are so happy and so privileged in so many ways. These kings have been warned and commanded to submit to God's chosen king. 
And it also follows that this is the wise thing for you and I to do. If you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, this here is God's warning for you. Here we see God's mercy. God could have easily destroyed all those opposed to him straight away. But in his mercy, he provides rebels with the opportunity to turn back to him. And this is the good news, that rebels can be accepted by God. And it's God himself who makes this possible at great cost to himself. God has given his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sin offering, to pay the penalty for sin, so that people can be forgiven. Because of Jesus' death, rebels can be freely forgiven and reconciled to God. God has told us here what we have to do. We have to, like these kings, submit ourselves to God, to repent of our rebellion and turn to God. We have to come under Jesus' lordship and take him as our king. We have to trust that his death is the payment for our sins, the reason why we can be forgiven. For those who remain outside of Christ, there is certain judgment and wrath. But for those who repent, there is safety and refuge in Jesus. This could be illustrated by thinking about a rock or a stone Rock is great to build a house on. It provides a solid foundation that won't move. A rock is a great place to take shelter. If you are in the desert, uh, it may be the only thing that will keep you out of the heat of the sun. A high rock is a great refuge from enemies. Many fortresses are built on rocks. So a great rock can be of immense benefit and blessing. But on the other hand, a rock can destroy. Anyone who has ever tripped over or fallen onto a rock knows what happens. We come off second best. The rock is fine, but we are not so fine. But to have a a large rock fall on us is even more disastrous. It is of such weight and such force that it cannot be stopped, it crushes. In the same way, Jesus provides great blessing and great security for those who come to him and submit to him and acknowledge him as their king. But for those who continue to rebel against them, they will be destroyed. In the Gospels, Jesus takes up this idea at least in part, and refers to himself as a stone. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. God has made Jesus king over all things. Where do you stand in relation to God's appointed king? Are you opposed to him Or are you taking refuge in him? Have you responded wisely to Jesus, God's appointed king? 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, we give you great thanks that you are in total control and that you have exalted your Son. We thank you that we know that Jesus has all power and authority and as we try to serve you, you are with us. Lord, we pray for those who may not know you here today. We pray that they may be wise. We pray that they may heed your warning and submit to your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.